0: It's Aspen Ideas to go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Last year, actor Frank Azaria announced he would no longer voice the character of Apu on the show The Simpsons. The Washington Post reports Azaria, a white man, apologized to, quote, every single Indian person in this country for voicing the Indian-born convenience store clerk. Columbia linguistics professor John McWhorter disagrees with the move. It's part of today's cancel culture, he says.
1: Something has happened that I think goes much further than sensible people would have understood, say, 10 years ago. It's not that I think the past was better. I think Mm -hmm. we're always actually getting better in most ways. But there are times when I think that our sense of what was permissible speech, what lines you were permitted to cross as a kind of wit, all of that made more sense in 1995 than it does now.
0: Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion was held by the Society of Fellows at the Institute. John McWhorter has authored two dozen books and contributes to The Atlantic. A year ago, he wrote that some people have been unfairly tarred and it's part of a cultural sea change. Cancel culture brings new complexities to the idea of upholding free speech. Who limits free speech? Why is it restricted? And where is it controlled? McWhorter speaks with Jane Costen about pop culture, the philosophy behind free speech, and how college campuses are often where today's cancel culture frame of mind begins. Costen hosts the New York Times podcast, The Argument. Here's Koston. I want to start out asking you, John,
2: where and how do you think you became invested in this conversation in the first place? Was there a moment or a conversation around speech and the freedom of speech and just to be clear here when i'm talking about free speech in this venue i am not talking about the legal definition of free speech because that is a separate thing that involves the courts i think i'm talking about more the the philosophy of free speech but when did you first become invested in this concept
1: um it's interesting that you put it as become invested because i must admit that my life proceeds in a much less directed way than that. It wasn't that one day I woke up and decided I shall invest myself in this issue. Because the truth is what I am, as you know, is a linguist and not actually a societally oriented linguist in the work that I actually do and you know put into journals. But I think what happened is that in the mid teens, in the mid 20 teens, there arose a mood on college campuses that I think is now much further beyond than that, where I think a lot of people were wondering, why is it that so much is being decreed as racist, which 10 years ago would have been thought of as just things to talk about intelligently. And I seem for better or for worse to have become the kind of Black writer who white people are comfortable asking, is that really racist or not? And I say that proudly, because I do believe that in our time, there is an exaggeration, and there is um, a kind of There's a kind of excessive policing of things. And I think that what I try to do is explain why somebody might think something is racist and then explain why it might not be given that there is real racism to combat. And why are we having these little debates about how somebody uses a word? And so I think it was more that I was called to comment on it. And oddly enough, now someone calls upon me to talk about free speech. I didn't plan that, but Mm -hmm. it seems that charting our discussion of race in this country means that you have to be concerned with what we call free speech and where we draw the lines and the issue is where you draw the lines
2: right i think that for me i come from i was thinking about this because there is no like ah the scales fell from my eyes or i was struck by lightning or i had no road to damascus moment um but i think for me i was interested and what i'm always focused on which I'm aware is there, there was a conversation about this happening online. But I, I am someone who hypocrisy to me is my least favorite thing. It is like my trigger point of concepts. And I grew up in a very um, conservative city in the city of Cincinnati. Um, famously, Mark Twain said that when the world ended, he wanted to go to Cincinnati because then he'd have 10 more years. And I grew up in an environment in <laughs> which <never> <laughs> um, he was right uh, conversations about uh, sexual orientation and gender identity were heavily limited and that the spe- that type of speech and speech around art and um, pr- some listeners might remember in Cincinnati was the host of the uh, Robert Mapplethorpe debate over art and speech and the freedom of art as speech. And so it's been really interesting to me to go from a very conservative background um, or context more accurately. I was in a liberal household in a very conservative context and see that there were a lot of things about which you were not supposed to talk about or that were supposed to be kept from you and see that in some ways that the sides well, the sides didn't exactly turn. Because I think that one thing I think is interesting is that when we say freedom of speech, freedom of thought, the question really is freedom of which speech, freedom of which thought. And I because I think a lot about the fact that um, if we are all honest with ourselves, we all have speech that we find anathema and that we would want to be removed from the public sphere. For instance, when Mm -hmm. people start getting very upset about people getting banned from Twitter, there's always a moment where they're like, but the Ayatollah is allowed to tweet because there's, you know, obviously you should kick the Ayatollah off Twitter. (laughs) And obviously, Twitter's a private entity. They can do this. But I'm interested to see because I was thinking you noted that, a lot of this um, for you, this conversation centers around race on college campuses. And I would be curious if that in some ways comes not just from students and from kind of grassroots popular culture around conversations on race, but also I would argue from the expansion of human resources departments on college campuses. <laughs> I think about this a lot with um, diversity, equity, inclusion efforts where in some ways they are attempting to do something. They're like, we need to have this department that will tell people not to say this, because if someone says this, we will get sued. So I'm mm-hmm. interested in your experience. You obviously work on college campuses. Has it been coming from students? Has it been coming from administration? Has there been kind of an interweaving of those two in your experience of the curtailing of speech?
1: Um, It starts with um, something that happens on campuses and is led by students, and not just undergraduates, but graduate students and young professors. But then what's happened is that it's jumped the rail into society as a whole, where there is a kind of person who feels that defenestrating people is a necessary awkwardness In making the world a better place. And I genuinely think that these people are well-intentioned. I have a name for them. I call them the elect. And I mean it to, you know, I'm thumbing my nose a little bit, but I think the elect really do feel that they're making the world a better place and that sometimes to make an omelet, you have to crack some eggs. But I agree with you about the hypocrisy. I like to call it the mendacity because I like a certain scene in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. But what really bothers me, the reason I started doing race was because I don't like it. It's not so much undergraduates. I understand when somebody's 19. I was 19 just a few years ago. <laughs> I like to pretend. So I get that. What bothers me is when somebody 50, you know, and I, I'm 55, a person who's grown 50, is standing in front of me and clearly lying. And you're not supposed to call them on it. That bothered me when I was 30 and I was at UC Berkeley and there was the demise of racial preferences. And I listened to people of all colors and all political stripes saying things they didn't mean. And even today I'll give you something I've never written about and I'm not going to, and I don't think about it much, but here's a little something. I don't think most people, regardless of level of education, regardless of intelligence or sensitivity, I don't think most Americans think that it was a bad thing that Hank Azaria, a white man, did the voice of Apu on The Simpsons. Apu was a fully realized and very dignified character. Hank Azaria was doing this cute voice. Many, many South Asian Americans love Apu and will continue to. But Hank Azaria had to step away. He's lying, and more to the point, a great many people who are applauding that decision. Are lying. Something has happened that I think goes much further than sensible people would have understood say 10 years ago. And I think that at times, you talk about conservative, it's not that I think the past was better. I think we're Mm -hmm. always actually getting better in most ways. But there are times when I think that our sense of what was permissible speech, what lines you were permitted to cross as a kind of wit, i.e. Hank Azaria doing this Apu character for all this time, All of that made more sense in 1995 than it does now. And I feel funny saying that. It's not Mm -hmm. like I feel like I want to go back to my youth, but something has happened in the 20 teens that I don't think would make sense in the view of social history as we move on. And I feel it's my job to call everybody on it.
2: Right. I think, though, I am curious as to your thoughts, because I think that in some moments I was thinking, actually, I've been thinking a lot about um, the culture of, the popular culture of the early 1990s, mid 1990s, um, specifically referencing um, I read something recently on the film Kids, which I have made it through about eight minutes of. And then I had to tap out. And there was a conversation recently where it was going back the 20th anniversary of making that movie. And a lot of the people who were involved in that movie was this is a deeply harmful experience for me. This was very bad. It, it, you know, I was very young. This was a very bad idea. And I keep thinking about how there are so many moments in which we are trying to get ahead of the thing we're next going to do wrong, where we see the thing. You know, you you go back to there's always those conversations of like, oh, you couldn't make this movie today. And for some reason, people always choose something re- like, ah, they would never make office space today. And I'm like, no, they would never make pretty baby today. Mm-hmm. in which Brooke Shields plays a child sex worker. Like there are many things where I'm like, it seems to me as if we are attempting to get out ahead of the next thing, like the thing that we are very concerned is going to be seen as wrong. Maybe not now, but the thing that will be seen as wrong five, ten years ago, like mm-hmm. we're trying to, you know, we've seen that the person who claims to be an ally never is because we live in that type of world. We, we it's like we're trying to get ahead of ourselves. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like we have this idea of predestination, but it's like pre cancellation. Mm-hmm. But on that note, and I, I, can't, I think we talked about this a little bit. We had a really interesting conversation um, with, with you Michelle. and my colleague with Michelle Goldberg uh, mm-hmm. for my podcast, The Argument. And something I was thinking about and I think I brought up on the show is that in some ways we have these popular culture moments of p- someone stepping away from that show. Um, There's another example of an actress who was doing the voice of an African-American character on the show. Big Mouth who stepped away a mixed Uh,
1: character. Yes. And it's Jenny Slate who decides that she shouldn't do the voice when the character's voice wasn't even ethnicized. That's the sort of thing I mean. Yeah.
2: And I am interested that that seems to be. And you see that, like, it's not as if that there was and, you know, the streets were not crying out to change the voice actor on Big Mouth. No, like there was like there was no there was like the when we think about popular culture, we're in a very segmented time. And What popular culture even means is very hard to say. I always mm-hmm. think about the example that like the biggest band on earth is probably BTS, which is a K-pop band. And I'm pretty sure I've heard two of their songs in my life. <laughs> um, but they get like billions of watches on YouTube. But I am interested into your thoughts and not to get into kind of a, a class argument here, whether or not this is kind of like, well, you can't have big change. You can't have the type of all encompassing change that would truly shake up our institutions such as they exist. Institutions that while it's many non-white people are able to rise to the top. Many non-white people are not able to. And they are largely pushed out of the system writ large. And we are not even having conversations about those people. They are not voting. They are they are not taking part in this conversation. We can't do anything about that, but we can do something about the voice and the Simpsons. Do you see this as being kind of like In in some ways, it's, it's like saying, you know, well, we can't do a big thing, but we'll do the small thing and then we'll feel like that's an action.
1: I do. Culture is one fun and two, it's easy. And so you have this mixed character who just sounds like whoever. Jenny Slate decides she's not going to do it. Now, who are you going to get to do it? And if it's somebody else who sounds whatever, well, then Jenny Slate is making a little less money and this other person is making a little bit more. But all of that is just a kind of a semaphore, really. And what we have to think about is often, and I think someone needs to write this article or this book, we need a discussion about the nature of wit, And there are times when we need to understand that something is not funny anymore. And so there's a certain kind of man of a certain age who in the 1970s didn't like that women started saying, that's not funny. Mm -hmm. And the sort of things that these guys thought were funny, now, you know, most of us would just turn and walk away from, yeah, that needed to change. But when it comes to office space, there is a temptation to think, well, things must always change and we must accept anything that's different. But really, office space, it was 10 minutes ago. And yeah. all of us remember sitting there and watching that absolutely wonderful, silly little movie, probably, you know, a little bit high or a little bit drunken with people that we liked. We probably saw it three times. What was wrong with it? And to the extent that anybody has a problem with it, it's the nature of wit. What makes us laugh when we put somebody in a situation and we laugh because it's incongruous? And there's a certain kind of person that's telling us that office space wasn't funny. And the problem is that that kind of person is trying to make us think that they're ahead of the curve, that they're teaching us to see the world in a new way like you're supposed to at least pretend to like Kandinsky. That's not what this is. They're crude. Their sense of humor is one that would have fit in in roughly the 1890s. They're rejecting modern wit, modern sensitivity, modern layers in favor of something that comes from the sandbox, something that's punitive, something that really reminds me of pitchforks and the Taliban rather than anything that you would think of as advanced thought. And what we do is we don't advance by consensus. We don't decide that office space really is problematic and that it would never be made today and that we're glad and that we don't all quietly wish there would be a sequel, which we all do. Instead, we pretend that we disapprove of office space. I find that revolting about our modern culture and how much falseness there is about these things. Nobody doesn't like office space except about seven people writing columns for certain places. But those people have such power, they can call you such dirty names that we're stuck pretending. I think America, enlightened America needs to stop pretending that free speech should be limited as much as we're being taught. We can't have completely free speech, but it's at the point where what we've got is something Orwellian. And you know, we need to, we need to call it out.
2: But I, I would say that there's also a fascinating there. The power that that has is not necessarily the power of the people writing those those articles. It is the power that those articles generate because people will get very upset about them.
1: Mm-hmm. And a certain cadre, yes,
2: right. And so it's interesting to me because I think that there is always like there is something and this happens because social media is inherently flattening. And so you will see just a a quote from something and then people will yell about the quote from something. And I think that there really has been a type of writer. And I would note that this is also taking place in an environment which the media environment is very strange and for many people, very bad. Um, With the gradual shrinking of local news outlets and local news writers, I think that there's a real sense that like, Yes, it would be great if you could get more people to read something that wasn't about trying to make them mad, but it actually is very profitable. And by profitable, I mean more profitable than not making people upset to write about how like, you know, that thing you like, it's bad. (laughs) You know, that thing I like, it's good. And you could do that for basically anything. Um, I think a lot about how well, this actually gets to something I'm curious about, about you. Is there anything when you've had these conversations with people, has your mind been changed where you are thinking about some piece of culture or some cultural or linguistic totem that someone sits down and talks with you and and you're like, actually, I think you're correct. I, I, and I'll give you an example of something that I've been thinking about a lot. So. I love true crime. If you give me a podcast or a book or a documentary about a serial killer, I'm like, yes, I will read it, whatever it is. (laughs) It is like I can't explain. I I think I mean, it's probably the same thing of like, you know, I don't rubberneck at car accidents. I don't do any of those things, but I am deeply fascinated. I think of myself as being fascinated with the criminal mind and with the investigatory process. But there is something very like visceral about that, where you're just like, oh, I've heard about that serial killer. Give me the one that's like even worse. And there's been a shift within the true crime space to be like, hang on a second. One, a lot of true crime writing assumes that like. That the serial killer or the killer in the instance is like a super genius, when actually in many cases they were not super geniuses, police were very bad at their jobs. Also, the victims are largely kept out of it. You just become like nameless woman, nameless sex worker. You know about, say, Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy, but you know, don't know any of the names of their victims. And you see that with movies that are made about Ted Bundy, where it ignores, you know, he murdered a 12 year old girl. He murdered women at the University of Washington. Like and yet you're like, ah, Ted Bundy. He was so charismatic or something. Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking a lot about how like a couple of years ago, if someone would have been like, obviously, you know, I would hope that people wouldn't just yell. That's problematic at me. But like this has been something I've been thinking a lot about. I'm like, hey, this thing I like, I maybe should think about that a little bit. Like not in a like I must ban this in a performative way or be say on Twitter, I'm going to stop listening to true crime podcast. But I have been thinking a lot about like, am I making a decision by listening to this It's going to generate more of this and then going is that how is that going to make the victims families feel Mm -hmm. how am i making how am i contributing to this so i'm curious for you if there's been a moment or a something that was like that
1: for you yeah if you never change your mind you're not really thinking if you look at somebody who's trying to think in the public sphere over the years if they're still saying the same thing you know year after year after year and nothing changes they're not really thinking and so yeah i have my mind changed to an extent but i would have to say in this particular era, not that much, because I think that we're being presented with something forced and extreme. But for example, random example, we're talking about these examples of pop culture. I really like Bob's Burgers. I think it's one of the funniest things that has ever existed. And yet there's some people who disapprove of the fact that One of the lead women is done by a man. And then there's also the Jocelyn character who's done Mm -hmm. by that same man. And she's so funny. I'm on the floor every time she talks. But that same guy, and there's a little tradition on that show of guys doing women. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was meant as hurtful. But I have heard it said that they shouldn't have any more of that. Like that that was the way they did it in the beginning. But you know, after that, let's give women the work of doing women's voices. I get that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are things that we could fix about ourselves, but the hang high, this is something is business where something is, you know, you, you can't cancel something on the internet. The idea being boycott this, stop watching it. It's so problematic that we should throw it into a ditch that has taken on too much of a pitch because of the nature of social media. It's not that human nature has changed, but as you're implying, you can create a message on Twitter in particular that has an effect that would have been physically impossible, infrastructurally impossible just 15 years ago. And so we're learning new aspects of being human and what happens with social psychology. So yeah, I can bend. You know, if I, I always try to think to myself, don't just sit with a straight back and resist anything anybody says against what you think, because that's becoming recreational. You're kind of recreating the other right. side. Probably you're going to be wrong about something. But then on the other hand, I do feel like I have my principles and I feel like there's something that needs to be pushed back against these days more than accepted.
2: Right. How do you avoid being performative in doing so? I think that there is a real honest with yourself. Yeah, I think that that honesty is essential because I become there is. uh, Performativity is so natural to fall into in which you become this idea of like, you are that person who stands Mm -hmm. for X. And I think that that's why when I when I'm talking on the Internet or depicted as something, I want to be depicted as the full entity that is me. Because I don't want to perform a particular political ideology, especially because I don't think anyone actually is their political ideology. And if you ever meet people who are,
1: oh, there, there are people like that, but it's a bad yeah. time.
2: It's a bad mm-hmm. time. But I, I think that that honesty is essential. Is there is that something that you've continued to work on in yourself? Mm-hmm. Because I, think I always that
1: ask myself, do you believe it? Because there's a part of you, we all perform to an mm-hmm. extent. But then I think to myself, do I mean it? There's always something nagging. If I don't really mean it, something in me kind of nags. And I'm thinking, well, what else could I say to that person? You know, what else would I say against it? And I gradually realize something's bothering me. I don't really fully believe what I'm saying. There's something worthwhile about what this person is putting forth. Accept it. And yeah, I, if you can't, If you don't question yourself, you end up being predictable. And if you're truly predictable because the world is complicated, you're wrong. The world is never so tidy that if you've got this one ditch of an ideology, everything is always going to make sense. That doesn't work for somebody on the hard right. And it doesn't work for somebody who sees racism behind every rock and tree. The world is just more complicated than that.
2: Right. Your hammer will not work for every nail. Ever. No. I want to ask you, uh, you had a book come out earlier this year, Nine Mm -hmm. Nasty Words, English in the Gutter, (laughs) Then Now and Forever, which is fantastic. And I'm curious, what about the process of researching and thinking about this book? Was there a moment in there that shifted your thinking about how we define words as being nasty or not? (laughs)
1: Um. It's funny with nine nasty words and where it ended up falling in. Talk about the complexity of social history. For me, what that book was about was fuck. I find that word very interesting. And I realized, you know, uh, it's not, I can't write a whole book about that. Nobody would read it. So I thought it has to be about profanity in general. And so I did that. But then I realized, talk about being honest with yourself. I'm thinking, okay, profanity. And I go from damn through fuck to shit and ass. Right. And I'm thinking something because missing.
2: damn and hell. That's that's religious. The idea of damning someone.
1: And I they mean, used to be yeah, right. The they idea, were blasphemy.
2: Right. And like saying, God damn, was it, mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny now because um there's also there's been a, a kind of a resurgence of thinking about swearing but it's funny how you could say like god damn you that's very different from like god damn this sushi's good (laughs) like we can use i i think that that's the thing i love and so many comedians have said that i love about swear words is that you could throw it into anything and there's like a point of emphasis there but yeah you you were kind of
1: swear word yeah but then i thought i'm gonna do a book about all these dirty words but they don't feel dirty to me I thought I say them all the time, including in front of my kids. And I thought that's not because I'm strange. It's because real profanity is the N word and terrible words that refer to women. So I thought to write this book in 2020, which is when I wrote it, I'm going to have to get into what we call slurs because they're profanity too. And to be honest, My real feeling was, oh, God, I've got to write about the N-word again because I have and I'm black and it's what people expect. It puts you in a box. I thought I want to write about fucking shit and I'm going to write this N-word chapter and it's going to get all the attention. And that's exactly what has happened. And, you know, I figure fine, you know, the racial reckoning happened and I am black and I represent my people. But that chapter to me was an add on. I shouldn't say this because the New York Times was very nice to do the excerpt, but that was an add on rather than the book. But the big realization was a book about profanity cannot stop with body parts today. It really has to be about, you know, F A G G O T, et cetera, as in me sitting here spelling. That's our profanity today. So that was the realization for that book. And it seems to, I'm happy that it did well. And I think people are reading the, the dirty little chapters as much as the slur chapters, but it ended up being this book that straddled straddled two subjects in a way that I wasn't expecting at first.
2: Yeah. And I think that that's something um, I, my husband, we were recently went to a museum that was um, depicting DC's LGBT history. And there's this amazing photograph of, um, a person wearing a T-shirt in like 1971, and it said "faggots do it dirty," and it's he, you know, he's wearing a feather boa, and it's very much of like he knows what that word is supposed to mean mm-hmm. at that time. He knows mm-hmm. that, like in 1971, that is a word that if you're, you're even adjacent to that word, you can be fired from the federal government, you can be forced from your home, you can exactly. lose everything that has ever mattered to you. And he's like, "I am going to wear a shirt that says that," and I think you see that within the way that queer is used or Definitely. Um, among like a certain sector of the lesbian community, dyke, for example, which is something mm-hmm. that but and it also now has a very specific meaning. They're like, oh, no, I am this type. I'm not I'm not a dyke or I am. And it, I think <laughs> that's so interesting that it's become like, ah, please. No, my wife is a dyke. I am not. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I am interested. One thing is What do you think it says about how we think about the English language that many of our earliest swears had to do with damnation and some of our more recent swears have to do with extremely derogatory ways to refer to groups of people? How how did you think about that shift?
1: To me, all that is, is simple anthropology. If you went back a thousand years, what are people most hung up about? And it was things of God these things weren't symbolic. These were people where, because almost everybody was illiterate, for example, the way you signed something was you swore to God. That was the way you you signed something orally. And so that's what was important to those people. Then you get the Reformation and you get the development of new conceptions of privacy, and people get hung up in a way beyond the Beavis and Butthead snicker with the body and what goes into it and what comes out of it in a way that, say, Chaucer wouldn't have noticed. Chaucer would giggle at you know, talking about dicks and peepees and things like that. About 200 years after that, those things become a new kind of profanity. Then the only question is, what are we hung up on now? And a lot of us would think, well, we're still hung up on the body and that person is really thinking more of 1970 than 1990. Things really changed in the late 20th century. So we have some hangups, but nothing like the past. What are we hung up on? And if you think about it, if you really, if you're anthropological about it, we're hung up on issues of race and racism, sex and sexism. We're hung up on slurs, abusive groups. We're hung up on power differentials. That is what our society is most hung up about. Wouldn't you expect then that that's where the curse words would go? it's really very organic. We don't call them curses, but that's just like we don't call a tomato a fruit. These things are arbitrary. The N-word is a curse, just like shit is at this point. Right. So it all feels very natural to me. It's just what society is hung up on.
0: this month the team that created the aspen ideas festival is partnering with mcquart to hold unfinished live technologists journalists artists change makers and others will gather at the shed in new york city for two days of dynamic talks they will explore a decentralized future where new technologies can enable a stronger democracy and fairer economy join us in new york on september 23rd and 24th discover more at live.unfinished.com and find a link to rsvp in our show notes Let's get back to today's conversation. Here's Jane Koston.
2: So you mentioned that there's kind of this dramatic shift in language and in how we understand language that happens in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And I wonder, are we still rethinking that? There's this moment in which um, there was a terrific New Yorker piece um, I say terrific and also harrowing um, about a German psychologist in the 1970s who decided that in order to defeat Nazism and the spirit of Nazism, he was required to have foster children stay with pedophiles. And it was not just him. It was kind of approved by Mm -hmm. the government and very much this whole. We seem to always swing between libertinism and whatever the ex- the exact opposite of libertinism. And I'm interested in how that's reflected in our language, because um, you the, you think about how. I, I'm always thinking about how all in the family, the television show from the 1970s, the you know, the opening song is about how those were the days and how the 1970s are, you know, this terrible time in which we've lost all like we keep doing having these moments in which we we go too far and then we swing back and then we go further and then we swing back and we go further and we swing back. Are there are there link how has our language shifted to show that? Are there things that were anathema to say in the 1970s and then fine in the 1980s and then anathema again now?
1: <laughs> language is um more conservative than people in some ways. And so language usually doesn't oscillate in that way when it comes to what's blasphemous or profane. What is considered profane tends to stick and then wash away regardless of what the tone of the times are. And so, for example, in the 1920s, a lot of people, mostly white people in certain cities, those are the people who get written about, but white people in cities were doing all sorts of libertine things and reconceiving notions of sex and bodily movement and relationships, but notions of profanity stayed pretty much the same. A certain kind of person cursed more, but that didn't change the way most of the country related. The interesting thing about the 70s though, is that you can hear so much relatively natural speech even on TV. So the way people talk on Dick Van Dyke is very cosseted. The way people talked on the Jeffersons was much realer. And the most interesting thing that you can see about it is that nobody on the Jeffersons says damn or fuck or shit. But on the Jeffersons, within reason, people do say the N-word. And sometimes it's affectionate. Sometimes it's not affectionate. But there's no pox on that yet sometimes they even have white people saying it. And I remember thinking of it as a very, you know, up to the minute show when I was eight and nine years old. But today, those things, including in All in the Family, if you try to resurrect the episodes, you have to bleep those things out. Whereas I remember sitting in, you know, living room with my social worker, teacher, mother, and, you know, college administrator, father, people were like, I'm going to do it. People were yelling nigger on TV. And nobody thought, anything of it because the word hadn't become profane yet. It was it was a slur. Things changed about 30 years later.
2: What do you think drove that change? Because there's that that whole the Chris Rock sketch about, well, there's nigga and then there's nigger and those are two mm-hmm. different things. And but I think it also has to do with the usage of that term. And we all know what that means. We all know there's a very there's a big difference between the familial usage which is what drives me nuts when you see um, occasionally in right leaning publications they are like, well, they use it in a rap music. And I'm like, yes, it's the same reason why, like, I can say something to a sibling or a friend and I would not say the same thing to
1: like it's a different word, yeah,
2: a nurse at a hospital. Like, it's clearly <laughs> contextual. But what do you think that how do you think that that shift happened where it just became outside of a very specific use of just being like, you can't use it. It's out. Don't use it. Not at all. Not even with the A.
1: Mm -hmm. That shut down in the late 90s. It started then and was pretty much official by about eight years ago. And all I can say is that what corresponds with that is the Internet. Exactly why and how. I don't think I'm smart enough right now to figure out because it wasn't just social media because that really settles in as default starting in 2009. And the N-word, the wagons were already circling. It starts with Christopher Darden. Officially, it starts with Christopher Darden's speech during the OJ trial, but he wasn't a very charismatic figure. It's not as if people were hearkening to him. He was the first person, though, to imply that it was now profanity, although he didn't use that word. But yeah, back in the late 90s, I remember doing radio interviews where, with taste you could say the word when you were only referring to it. Nobody thought anything of it, white or black. That was unthinkable by 10 years later. And it seems to have to do with how much more quickly you can communicate with each other. And therefore, how much more effectively a certain kind of person who's, as we might put it, ahead of the curve that the rest of us are on, feels about these things. And next thing you know, you have people being fired for using something that sounds like the word. Nobody would have imagined that in 1995, but... Clearly, the Internet has something to do with this. When there was just TV, that sort of thing wasn't happening.
2: It's interesting also because I think that one of the, the fascinating things about living in such a multicultural and diverse country is that we are a part of other people's intracultural conversations. I'm always reminded, one of my favorite random Marion Barry facts, uh, the former mayor of Washington, <laughs> D.C., and one of the most ludicrous people. A lot of random basis. facts
1: about him. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, so in the late 1960s, he is um, in D.C., active in politics, but he's also taking part in protests against black exploitation films. Um, he is extremely bothered I didn't by know that. Um, hmm exploitation films, he he starts a protest group. They go to the White House because he is he's bothered by their existence. He thinks that they're derogatory to the race. And mm. he essentially wants them to be banned from. He wants like Mario Van Peebles to be drummed out of popular society. And he thinks that essentially it's one of again, it's an intracultural conversation. And I think that you see that among African-Americans with the N word um, with this idea of like whether it usage is appropriate, but I'm curious as to your thoughts on when we are involved in other people's mm-hmm. in other communities, intracultural arguments about language. Um, I'm reminded there was a, a Supreme Court case that had to do with a band composed of Asian Americans and they were called the Slants, and they wanted to trademark that name. And they got they had to go to the Supreme Court in order to do so because you couldn't trademark something that was offensive. And they got a lot of backlash in their own community of like, this makes us look bad. What mm-hmm. how, how do you think about how we are not just engaging in a cultural conversation with one culture? We're engaging in cultural conversations across many cultures, across many communities, some that are mixed together, some that are stratified in ways that we don't might not understand. How do you think that impacts these conversations?
1: You know, it's interesting. I always want to know with those quote unquote conversations, how representative the opinion against the people is. And so with the slants, I remember that conversation. And I remember... I wonder how a critical mass of Asian people feel. And I genuinely didn't know, but I know a certain kind of person gets the microphone and gets to yell louder. And we see similar examples today, for example, with Latinx, where we've learned recently that fewer than one in 20 Latino people have any interest in that term. Rather, it's a term that a certain kind of, if I may, hyper-woke person prefers, which is fine in itself, but it doesn't represent what the community wants. I was even surprised to find out that most don't mind Hispanic, which I genuinely thought had been erased back in 1990. I thought Hispanic was a slur, apparently not in terms of people who are actually walking around being Latino. And you see this sort of thing all the time. And that means that you know, Marion Barry, I didn't know that, that he didn't like the black exploitation films. But we look back on those films now, they gave an awful lot of wonderful actors a lot of work. You can see them in many layers, and that's how a great right. many Black intellectuals saw the films. So Barry, and I'm not trying to dump on him, enough people can do that. <laughs> However, he felt about exploitation. that was one particular view that made for good theater, frankly. But I doubt if most Black people felt that way about Shaft. And what Pam Greer was doing, and even the Mac and the lesser ones. I think most people were just kind of having a good time. And I'm not sure that I can reject them because most of them weren't intellectuals. That's another thing that I worry about.
2: I am curious about the fact that most of the people having these conversations are within intellectual environments in which those conversations are being had. These then Mm -hmm. they get, they percolate elsewhere, but they percolate into environments in which. I always joke about the mom test. My mom basically only watches PBS. And as far (laughs) as she knows, Catherine Zeta Jones is the most famous woman alive because she was on some (laughs) PBS movies in the early 1990s. But like the Darling
1: Buds of May. Yes. 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 (laughs) I remember it well.
2: Yes. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. And my mom, you get it. But um, it's you know, I remember she was she asked me once, like, Am I supposed to say queer? I thought that was like, I thought that was offensive. Is that okay now? And so I'm curious as to how do you think that the the fact that so much of these conversations are being led by activists, which is fine if you're an activist, you are active in caring about these particular issues. But how do you think that impacts the broader environment, especially because I would argue that a lot of this like using Latinx uh, or not using Latinx doesn't really do anything for immigration reform or change what happens in communities of color. It just becomes this kind of like weird game of table tennis. How do you think (laughs) the intellectualization of these conversations? And we are both people who are love to think and talk and discuss. But I'm (laughs) curious how the intellectualization of these conversations is pushing out people who might have something to say, but are like, Hang on, I, I guess I need to go to grad school first.
1: Many of them, if depending on how adjacent, to use this term, they are to these elite conversations, many people are frightened. And just conform, but then people who are less adjacent just go on minding their business. I live in a neighborhood where every second person is Latino. I have never once heard anybody in that neighborhood spontaneously use the word Latinx. I hear the occasional Latino person who clearly went to college and reads a lot of books using it, but nobody nobody else. And it seems to me that what we're looking at is that, if I may, the elect are developing their own vocabulary, which is fine. You would expect that of people who talk more to one another than to others. That's how human communities work. But it's getting to the point where I'm beginning to think there's a kind of a lingo. There are certain shibboleths. There are certain words that that kind of person uses, and they, you know, it's great for them to keep using them. I'm wondering whether we should consider all of society responsible for using the words that they choose to. And so a woke Latino person might choose to say Latinx, and that's great. But That person's grandmother is never gonna say Latinx, nor is their mother, nor are most of their family who are their age either. Maybe that's just the way it stays. We're just seeing a new jargon, as opposed to what I think a lot of them suppose, which is that they're changing language in general. They they may find that their impact is not as considerable as they may be hoping, but I think that would be fine in itself.
0: John McWhorter teaches linguistics at Columbia University. He's authored more than 20 books, including ones on language like Nine Nasty Words and The Language Hoax, as well as books on race, such as Losing the Race. He hosts the podcast Lexicon Valley. Jane Costen hosts The Argument, which is a New York Times podcast. This conversation was held August 12th for members of the Society of Fellows, which is a national community of leaders who support the Aspen Institute. To view a video of the conversation, hear more like it, and learn more about SOF, go to aspeninstitute.org forward SOF. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Society of Fellows and produced by Marcy Krivenen and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.